Welcome to The Crunch with Crib Creative. I'm Jess, and each week we're going to be diving into the stories of some of Perth's best agents and business people, how they got where they are, and what they learned along the way. From a diesel mechanic in Kalgoorlie to one of Australia's most highly regarded auctioneers, Ross Hunter has quite the story. Now, focusing his energies on consulting to some of Australia's highest performing businesses and people, Ross has taken his wealth of experience and his personal mantra of crystal clear vision and channeled his energies into helping others perform at their best. We chatted to Ross about auctions in WA and what the best businesses in Australia are doing well. Welcome, Ross, to The Crunch. Thank you so much for your time and for coming in. Jess, thank you. Great to be here. Awesome. So I understand that you have had a a couple of career changes over the years and and, um, obviously now you're a business mentor amongst many other things, auctioneer, but it wasn't always the case. Can you just give me a little bit of a background of of how you got here? Sure. Um, I guess my early life was uh, I was a decent mechanic. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yep. my goodness. I look like a typical diesel mechanic, don't <laughs> Absolutely. I? Absolutely. Yeah, I got the dirty fingernails, I've got the overalls so, on. Yeah. So, yeah. No, it was, it was, it was great. It, so, it took me a lot, actually. It, it, was, it was a wonderful experience because um, as a very young person, I was working in the, you know, the northwest and so forth and in the Kalgoorlie in the outback, um, and it wasn't as comfortable and pretty as it is today. It was very raw and, um, you know, the unions didn't control the world. And you work seven days a week in some pretty tough conditions. And, you know, what? as much as it was about fixing bulldozers and earth moving gear, it was also learning about how to manage people in pretty adverse conditions, long yeah. hours, hot conditions, and under extreme time pressure because the, as the machine was... Lays idle through maintenance or whatever. It's not digging dirt out of the ground. It's not digging dirt out of the ground. It's not making money. Yeah, that's so I learned very, very early on about people management and about operating under pressure, which has, you know, been a fantastic thing to take through to my real estate career. Actually, well, any career, I guess. Yes, yeah. So obviously, you moved up the chain from being a mechanic to managing people. By the sounds of it, fixing bulldozers to fixing people. Yeah. <laughs> So what was the next step from from that mining, um, I look, guess? I, yeah, look, I got to the point, I was doing really well then. I was a young guy, I'd already you know, you know, bought my first home when I was 24, basically paid cash for it through you know those hard years of working away. I didn't booze it or gamble it or whatever. Yeah. Was it FIFO back then or were you living... No, 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 they sent you somewhere and they forgot you. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it, awesome. it was it was fine, not fine. It was like, yeah. fly in and forget. <laughs> fifth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fifth. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's... And when I, I got to the point where I was working hard, did everything, but then I realised that you know, that was about as far as I was going to go. Mm-hmm. And, and that was okay. And I mean, I used to crawl around under the bulldozers and say to my mates uh, in the mines, you know, I'm going to you know, go into business, I'm going to have an international company, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And for the sake of your listeners out there, I'm not going to repeat their answers. Uh, <laughs> you have to go beep, beep, beep. But, you know, I, I did feel that glass ceiling was there. And I, it was, I don't know why, because I hadn't really read a lot of books about you know, self-development or anything like that, but I just knew that I had to sort of find something that A, didn't have a glass ceiling, and B, something that I was accountable for the outcomes. Okay. Like, no matter what I did, yes, I was accountable for machines working, but I, no matter what I did, there was a level of, a, I, I couldn't be accountable for what my outcomes were in relation to income mm-hmm. and then income like money only creates choice and there was I wanted lots of choices in life yeah and I wasn't going to get it doing that so I wanted to move into industry that yeah got rid of those obstacles yeah. and um I saw real estate as as that industry was that something that was introduced to you or did you do the research and figure out this is for me 
Oh, look, I've, I've got, I've got, my mother's Italian and, you know, Italians love property. So yeah. you buy the property, you keep the property, you never sell the property. <laughs> you know? And so it was always, if I was going to do anything, it was always going to be in property. It was yeah. never for the love. I mean, everybody loves property and so forth, but I never moved to real estate because I love real estate. I moved into real estate because I, I love money. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> Fair. And I realised that was a place I could make lots of it. Yeah. So you um, were you selling real estate initially? Did you start here in Perth? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. I started here um, back in the day. Actually, this is back in 89. So that ages me, I know. I hate saying that because people go, oh, well, I wasn't even born then. <laughs> I was born then, <laughs> yeah, so oh, you're all right. Oh, that's good. <laughs> um, uh, for, it was back when uh, Pete Co existed in Perth okay. as a real estate group. Um, it was Pete and Co in Wembley at the time, so I was working around Wembley, Florida, Churchlands, that part of the world. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, so I know you went to New Zealand. So yeah. what was that journey? How did you? End yeah, up there? look, New Zealand was a, it was it was a fantastic journey. It was it was one of those journeys by mistake almost. Yeah. Um, what happened was so I was working away here and. Um, it was all going really well and then out of the blue I got a phone call from a guy that owned a small um, West Auckland company here mm-hmm. and he um, they were doing really well they had really good market share they wanted to really introduce auctions and they wanted to grow their group in the franchising world and I'd had by this stage um, I'd had a lot of exposure into the franchising network okay. and I, we had started pioneering auctions a little bit over here um, anyway, long story short, sorry, after saying no many times, I went across to NZ, met with this guy, and gut feel said, oh, yeah, this, is, this feels right. I mean, I had to ask him if I was in the North or the South Island when I was there, so that's how much I knew about New Zealand. <laughs> but anyway, I, um, I went there for what was really a 12-month contract yeah. and uh, came home 15 years later. Wow. Yeah, so that was cool. what happened. And so you mentioned pioneering options here. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons why he got in touch with you. Yeah, look, we, there was auctions were very embryonic in mm-hmm. Perth back then. Um, but the guy that I worked, the guy that I got to real estate um, with, a guy named Richard Ridge, who at the time was a bit of a jack the lad around town and all the rest of it. But he was very much an early adopter of the whole auction process back yeah. in the early 90s. And he really believed in them. And so for, you know, that rubbed off on me. And um, we started doing some auctions back in the early 90s. I mean, it makes me laugh because a lot of people say, oh, you think auctions are going to work in Perth? My God, we're doing them 30 years ago. Yeah. You know, um, and so that, that was going well. And then when we went to New Zealand, um, it was really the guy that owned the group there. And this is the whole thing. A lot of people talk about, do you think auctions are going to grow in Perth? Mm. It's only about one thing. It's about making a decision. You want to make it part of your culture. Like when we went to NZ, the guy that owned the group, made a very clear decision that auctions were going to be part of the growth of his group. Mm -hmm. And auctions were never done in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, they weren't just done, everybody thinks auctions are the special house on the top of the hill or whatever the case may be. We were auctioning grassroots everyday property in very, very, you know, average suburbs and we just went for it. Yeah. In fact, it was it was a, it was an amazing time because at that stage there was about twelve of us over there, twelve Aussies in Auckland, and they called us the Suits. You know the program, the Suits, where Megan Markle came from. Well, yeah. Mate, we were the original Suits <laughs> we, we were out there, and we but we went out. We helped the salespeople list the properties and yeah. convert them to auctions, um, and we just went for it. And we were just out there every Saturday, and we just absolutely knocked on its head to the point where auction in Auckland. Is it, Auckland is a more powerful auction capital now than Melbourne. Wow, really? Yeah, yeah. So on auctions, obviously you said 
you know, auctions were in embryonic stage back 30 years yeah. ago. Yeah. And a lot of people would say they're still, you know, obviously it's a mu- it's much less part of the culture here than it is on the East Coast. Yeah. Do you think that is because the agencies on the East Coast have decided, you know, as you said, have decided to make it part of the way they sell? Or what do you think, what do you think is the reason why they're not as widely used here? Um, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's part of that. And part of it is, look, there are some, some pockets in Perth where there's particular people, business owners, that are going, you know what, we see auctions as a really important part of our future. They're embracing it um, and they are educating their people around them mm. and they're just going for it. And yeah. auctions are very, very strong. Um, there's still, and it's not about whether the auction's right or wrong, it's, it's, it's about whether you choose for auctions to be part of your culture. I mean, for example, one of the myths is Melbourne. Everybody says Melbourne's the auction capital of the world. Well, it's not really, because when you look at the whole Melbourne metropolitan market, the, the further out you go, the auctions become not that common. Yeah, it's right. really ring-fenced to that sort of, you know, that not inner city, but the inner city and the surrounding suburbs is where the bulk of the auctions are done. Even in Melbourne, there's still some resistance the further out you go. Mm. And look, the whole Perth market, the thing around auctions is the minute people, you know, go, you know, we're going to make auctions part of our culture. We're going to educate our people. And part of the problem that's been in Perth a lot of people have gone down the auction road, they've tried them and they haven't worked. And they haven't worked, not because the system doesn't work, but because they actually haven't had the education behind the scenes mm-hmm. to understand how the auction program truly works. A, from an agent's point of view, B, how is it, what needs to happen between the relationship of you and the seller and what needs to have, what's the connectivity between you and the buyer during that whole you know, marketing campaign. And there's not enough understanding around that that we launched our own, uh, through my company, One Degree Consulting, we launched our own auction training program about mm-hmm. two years ago. We wrote um, a five-chapter manual um, that has really been um, important for a lot of companies because it, it goes through the A to Z, if you like, of auctions, it, it, and it's been a really, really strong platform to people to launch from mm-hmm. and get the success at auction. Look, last year and every year, I, I put up about myself as an auctioneer about $220 million worth of real estate you yeah. know, through agents I work with. It's just a fair amount of real estate. Yeah. Yeah, and if people ever want to question, do auctions work or don't they, here's an easy way to sort of um, sum it up. Out of that $220 million worth of real estate, I know that on average, I'm going to sell 56% of that property under the hammer. Mm-hmm. I know that um, by the time five days or seven days post-auction has come around, so 35 days in total in the market, I know that 83% of that property will sell. Okay. Same time, benchmark at the average days on market in Perth in the last you know, three or four years has sat up around sort of 70, 70, you know, plus or minus a few days. So we've halved the days on market of real estate in Perth of properties we've put through our auction process. Mm-hmm. People have got to get rid of that myth that an auction is only successful, it sells under the hammer. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's about can we clear this property in half the days on market than the Perth average? Okay. And the answer is yes, we've got conclusive evidence. You know, for the past four years, while Perth's been going through the tough times, we have done that. So it's an interest generating exercise as much as it is selling 
yeah. under the hammer? Is yeah. that look? It is. I mean, the auction. If you really compress down, people say, "Explain to me what an auction is." Well, as a seller, I would I would say that. Okay, so Jess, if I was listing your property, and yep. obviously if you you were going to sell and you met me, you'd want to list with me because mm-hmm. then we know what the absolutely. Of course, yeah. <laughs> you you would, and people say to me, "Well, why auction?" I say, "Simple auctions." Remove obstacles that get in the way of selling your property. Mm-hmm. And people go, what are those obstacles? Like the first one's price. Mm-hmm. It gets rid of the whole ambiguity around price. Mm-hmm. Secondly, it puts a deadline in place. You know, if you want something done in life, put a time and a date on it. Auction does that. Thirdly, it, correct, it corrects the whole marketing process. You know, we, we, we market and sell emotion and lifestyle, not houses. And the minute you take through the auction program, generally you've got a bigger marketing budget so you can really get out into the different platforms of marketing, mm-hmm. that lifestyle, that emotion of property. So we're not just looking for the person in the market to buy today. We're fishing for the person that as you and I sit here now, aren't even in the market thinking about buying a home. But because we've, we've got extra funds to, to really put together a solid marketing campaign, we're reaching into people's lives and we're triggering some emotional um, trigger they go, wow, I never thought about, well, I'll go and look at that property. So it's creating a market beyond the market itself. Okay, okay. What do you think um, in terms of getting people to put auctioning into their culture, yeah. what do you think the hesitation is there? Um, the fear of failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. You know, it's public failure as well. Yeah, you don't sell look, it is fear. None of us. Like- I, I've been burnt by someone trying to auction my property before and they didn't sell it, so... You know, yeah. it is like that. It fear is. Of- it's look. It's from the seller's point of view. It's the fear. It's like having a party and no one turns up. Yeah. What happens if no one turns up on the day? Yeah. The agent also goes. What happens if I do an auction and nobody turns up, or I don't? There's no bidders. It, it's all that sort of fear. And fear is a massively Huge. powerful yeah. emotion. So it's it's embracing sort of the fear mm-hmm. and saying, well, no, we're going to put every step in place to mitigate that best as possible, mm-hmm. then we'll get the result. Okay. So do you think, is there a demographic or a, you know, when you said to me Melbourne, inner city Melbourne, you know, auction rates are really high, but as you go further out, they're a lot lower. And to me that would say, well, inner city, you know, the competition to purchase is a lot higher and that's why. But you would say, no, that's not correct, I guess. No, no, no it's a bit no supply demand is an yeah. important thing, absolutely. Yeah. So is there a demographic or an area that does it does work better for? Look, it comes it comes down to just the whole thing, supply demand, really. Yeah. You know, we've got a saying, you know, every home's auctionable, just not every seller is. Yeah. You know, some okay. people just aren't ready for it or yeah. don't want it, they block it, don't auction it. Yeah. But every home is is auctionable. But the, the reality is, and we proved this in Auckland, is that the we, we really launched the whole market, um, the auction platform, through the everyday grassroots market mm-hmm. because that's what represents the bulk of real estate sales in any city. Yeah. So, therefore, if that's where the bulk of the properties are and that's where the bulk of the sellers are, you've got the supply-demand works, so put it out there. You know, yeah. It's not about the special house on top of the hill. It's got potentially one buyer. Yeah. It's not, which is where a lot of people have gone wrong in the past. Yeah. Okay. Let's get that special home. There's not really many buyers for it anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's always, you're always going to struggle. But everyday property with everyday buyers and sellers works wonderfully well. Okay. Beautiful. Um, let's go back to New Zealand. Yep. And then I guess you'll move back to Perth, starting your current business, which is, um, you know, a focus on, I guess, mentoring and leading businesses yep. and, and helping them make changes. What made you decide to move out of 
selling or okay look in New Zealand I wasn't selling I um, in that time I went over there to really work in that whole auction business development side of things and eventually um, myself and another guy we we bought the group out we owned the group um, so we had a, a nationwide network. Yeah. So my my role was that really as a franchisor. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, as much as I mean, what drove answer your question, what drove me back here um, was two things. One of them was one. I never want to be a passenger in life, and everything I set out to achieve with the group, we we sort of did. Yeah. Um, even though there's always more to do, but a lot of the big hairy audacious goals we set were done. Mm-hmm. Secondly, there was a huge pull to come back to Perth from a family point of view. Of course. Um, which was as parents got older and all the rest of it, which has proven to be um, an important move for us. But um, it was there's a lot of things going on at the time and we, we thought, no, now's the time. But what drove me when I came back to Perth to start the company I have, it really drew upon what it is that drove our company in New Zealand, what it made our company in New Zealand a really, really good company mm-hmm. was the fact, even though it was a real estate group, I never looked at it as a real estate company. So I always believed that, you know, we are a people development organisation disguised as a real estate agency. Because mm-hmm. my success or our success of being great realtors is only going to come through having great people. Yep. And having great people on the in the trenches, if you like, is only going to be as a result of having great leaders. Mm-hmm. So we we unlike a lot of unlike a lot of other groups, we we flipped our whole um, mentality around how we were going to train and develop people. Normally, it's all about sales, 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 sales. Yeah. We we flipped this on its head, and we we went. We're going to spend seventy or eighty percent of our resources on leadership development, and we're going to spend twenty or thirty percent on sales development. Okay. Because the whole theory around give me a great leader. I'll give you a great business. Give me a poor leader, I'll give you a poor business, regardless of economic times. Mm -hmm. And which was proven because in New Zealand back in 2008 when the GSC hit, New Zealand was absolutely decimated Mm -hmm. and our guys really stood up. So when we came back to Perth, it was me looking around at businesses and just seeing what was going on. I thought, wow, there's a real lack of strong leadership development over here. And I thought, no, that's what I did over there. That's what I'm passionate about. Mm -hmm. And sort of it evolved from there, really. Okay, wow. What were some of the biggest challenges that you faced, um, whether or not it was in New Zealand, running the business there, or and also but opening your your business here? Oh, simple. When I came back to Perth, because, mm. you know, I'm born and bred here, I thought, oh, great, I'm coming back to all these people and everything. Your network. Net- network. <laughs> network schmet work. <laughs> 12 years is a long time. 12, I was off the radar. I thought it was going to come back like the prodigal son has returned and everybody opens their arms. And they were like, like, who's this sheep shagger? Yeah, exactly. Oh, who is this sheep shagger? Listen, we, we don't have gum boots over there for any, for any other reason. That. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it was... Um, yeah, no network. I came back to Perth and I was off everybody's radar and I didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. So as much as I had all this experience and this IP and all this drive to get in and do these things, I knew nobody. Yeah. And I mean nobody. And the people that I did know, um, you know, I was off. It just wasn't part of the world anymore. Yeah. So I was literally starting a blank piece of paper. So what did you do? Um, I the got cold calls. Um, basically, I sat sat in a little office at home. Yeah. And I just yeah did emails, called people, started networking, using a few people that I did know to you know who can I meet and trying to influence through that 
network. Yeah. Um, but it was it was pretty tough. So that was 2011. Yeah. How long did it take you to start? Was there a point where you thought, okay, I've got this, or? Yeah, by the end of 2011, I'd established um, business, my business in Perth and my mm-hmm. business in Victoria. Okay. So within 12 months, I'd established across the country. Yeah. yeah. And what do you put that down to? Quick determination, bulldog tenacity. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. That's it. Fair enough. Um, that probably leads me into, I'm interested to hear what one of the main problems is that you, that real estate agents that you coach face. Yeah. Um, that obviously that story is probably a great, a great story for people just getting started out in the industry, you know. So, look, sales, because yeah, my business does, you know, work in those different spheres yeah. of, of salespeople and, and business Businesses. leaders. Yeah. With salespeople, I guess the number one thing outside of ongoing skill development, because, mm-hmm. yeah, there's no finish line. There's, there's a lot of um, people do a sales course to get a ticket into real estate and then they don't really keep developing themselves. So I find that that whole skill level is pretty low. Mm-hmm. So it's really forcing how do we get that to a high level. Mm-hmm. But that aside, the number one thing that I find is um, impacts on the business and they don't get traction around is lack of accountability mm-hmm. and lack of business rhythm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's an accountability in in my world is is the absolute cornerstone of everything. If you're not prepared to be accountable and be measured on a daily basis, then you're not going to make it. Yeah. Because this business, at the end of the day, when you distill it down to its most infinite form, is about numbers. Yeah. yeah. And if you don't understand that and you don't work the numbers, you won't make it. Mm-hmm. You know, that sounds brutal, but it's just a fact. You know, I look at the the really successful people I work with and the amount of people they connect with every single day versus people that have got a business that, that you know, goes up and down like a yo-yo, their level of inconsistency around the numbers of people they speak to every day is always going to deliver than that. Yeah. You know, so we've, we've got to be accountable. We've got to know our numbers. And then from your numbers, you build some really important intel around, you know, your ratios from your calls to your appraisals and your appraisals to your listings and your listings to your sales and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and when you get that, uh, I guess it's that level of science into your business, yeah. then you can really do some accurate predicting of, of how much you want to you know, ramp up your business. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at sport. Sport's a classic. You, know, you watch a game of sport now. It doesn't matter what sport it is. It's all about statistics and numbers, isn't it? Yeah. Why is that? Because numbers remove subjectivity. Mm-hmm. You know, there's an old saying, you know, even the bullshit and stop bullshitting. <laughs> yeah. You know, because they are what they are. But what the numbers do, they give accurate feedback to the people of where they need to um, inject their energy to improve things between one game and the other. Mm-hmm. Without those numbers, you'll sit there and you'll have a conversation with somebody and it's just their opinion. Yeah, okay. But Which num- is skewed. It's exactly. And everybody, everybody will have their own view of the yeah. world. Yeah. But whereas the numbers are exactly what they are. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's putting that science into business becomes really important. Of you know, we, we, we create our own online dashboard system which monitors all these numbers. Mm-hmm. And I know that when we launched that and we, and we got people really understanding and driving their numbers in real time, mm-hmm. not historic, um, the, the, the level of which they've gone to from that, just by having those ratios right, understanding the numbers and being accountable to the numbers, 
it's just been colossal. Yeah, right. Yeah. What about, you said business rhythm. What do you mean by business rhythm? Business, business rhythm really is, like if you look at the average um, business owner or the average salesperson, we know through years of collecting data that they're only effective for two quarters of a year. Really? Like, yeah, yeah. People say, I want to double my income. I say, well, that's fine. So all you need to do is to improve the two quarters that you're not effective. Because what happens is, on average, salespeople, they, they become very one-dimensional. They prospect, they list, and they sell. Yeah. And they do one thing at a time because they get busy, because they yeah. don't have systems and structure and accountability and all those things I've spoken about. Yeah. They, they very easily go off scent. So when you're busy selling, your prospecting drops off. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. then so what happens is you get to the point where you, you sell all your listings and you fall off the cliff face. And we know between falling off the cliff face and being back on the cliff face is about three months. Mm-hmm. So that's a quarter do that twice a year, you've lost you've lost half a year of productivity. Yeah. I'll give you a classic example. Right now, you know, here we are, beginning of October, mm-hmm. the most dangerous time of year for a salesperson. Mm-hmm. Because you're playing the game of two halves. You're playing the game where you've you've got to do your, all your prospecting, you've got to make sure you've got the stock to go deep into the year as close to Christmas as possible. Mm-hmm. So you've got a really strong run through to the end of the year. At the same time, you've got to be starting to set up the new year because mm-hmm. you're going to have people that talk to you and say hey Jess um, look let's get going you're going to say look oh I've got too much on I've got kids I've got Christmas I've got this I've got that trying to sell a house between now and Christmas is going to be impossible yeah I'll talk about it next year mm-hmm. that becomes more and more and more prevalent as we go on yeah so we've got to make sure that as that comes up we know that when we're going to launch our business in the new year we're going to launch it on the second january second saturday of january so we've got our marketing ready for that and we've got this one here so we, we, we're balancing it all so we come back to the work in the new year and we're not restarting yeah we've got stuff we're launching on the second saturday of january we're not coming back to start finding that stock mm-hmm. then we've got a prospect list and sell next paycheck you get to end of march yeah yeah, I've got I've got a client in Melbourne, and they're in an area called Craigieburn, which is basically out the back of the airport sort of place, sort of. Um, and about probably four years ago, we're having a conversation. I was looking at their financials. I said, "Guys, why is it in January? It's basically you don't earn any money." And they said, "Oh, you know, you know people are away, and you know the usual January excuses, which are about as good as a dog ate my homework." <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Um, they had these all these excuses. No, 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 no. I said, I'll guarantee that you know BP still want to be paid for the fuel. Coles want to be paid for the groceries. The landlord still wants to be paid. All these things don't stop. Well, why would you build a business plan that actually has no income? And they go, yeah, fair, fair point. Long story short, story. Come up the concept. Why don't we create something to motivate the salespeople and motivate the marketplace? So we came up the carnival. The last Saturday of January, they were going to um, do a carnival. Mm-hmm. There's some land at the back of the shopping centre where they are, and away they go. So put together some marketing collateral in October for that very reason. You know, people start to push back. Yeah. They started selling this concept. The last, the first one they did, which was um, about three years ago, um, they had um, 10 auctions, put a marquee up, and they did them on the last Saturday, January, of the Carnival, and they sold them. Well, this worked really well. Had a few things there for the kids and whatever. The next year, they did 15 got a bit bigger last year they did 15 auctions again and they had over 500 people come along on that saturday sold 14 out of the 15 under the hammer sold the other one afterwards they had face painted they had people on stilts they had popcorn machines they it was literally carnival it's become a cultural aspect of their community now yeah right january's now turned into it, it an okay month financially 
but more importantly, the ball's well and truly running. Yeah. So that first quarter is now a strong quarter, yeah. not a weak yeah. quarter. Massive. Yeah, huge. What a um, such a different strategy, a different way of looking at things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What um, what about the businesses that you're mentoring and, and that you're coaching? What are some of the, I suppose, as opposed to the individual agents, what yeah. are some of the biggest problems that you're seeing with the businesses? Um, number one thing is um, drive your business real time, not historically. Mm-hmm. I get really frustrated when I um, work with people and they look at all the results of their business based on what happened, not what where they are today or mm-hmm. where are they going. Mm-hmm. It's a good example is they get their financials at the end of the financial year and they look at what happened. Well, regards to what those financials say, it's all historic data. You, me, and nobody else is going to change them. Yeah. You know, so I'm a massive believer of throwing your business into real time. Mm-hmm. So that A, it makes your as a business leader, way more accountable, which then pushes it back down into the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and it allows you to make decisions to manoeuvre your business during the course of the month. It, it allows you to, to say, you know, if we, if we need to do 20 of something and it's halfway through the month, we've only done 10, you know as a leader where you need to put your energy to get things on track to achieve that 20 by the end of the month. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas most businesses wait till the end of the month. The classic example yeah, okay. is, I'll give you a really good example, Jess, is you go to the average sales meeting and they go for an hour. The, the average sales meeting, they'll talk for 55 minutes about what they did last week. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then as everybody's walking out the door, okay, guys, let's go for it, pump it up, let's go smash it this week. And that's about the only conversation that's had about what they're going to do. You know, yet they'll sit there and they'll edify themselves of what they did. Number one is from a business leader point of view, if you need to go to salesmen to ask the salespeople what they did last week, you lose. Yeah. You should know. Yeah. Secondly, challenge yourself and talk for 55 minutes what you're going to do next week mm-hmm. and five minutes what you did last week. Mm-hmm. You watch the culture in your business change overnight. Because I tell you what, every, every, instead of everybody sitting there in the seats high-fiving and feeling good about what they did, they're going to sit there, start to you know wriggle on their seats and feel, and start to get a bit of sweaty under the armpits of what they're going to do next week. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that whole sort of look in the windscreen look versus look in the rear vision mirror mentality. Yeah, right. Big difference. Huge difference. I'm just going back and thinking about. Um, I worked in recruitment and just whether or not that was something that we did. But I guess it, I guess it is. It's something that lots of salespeople do. Is really focus on. You know, I had a smash. I smashed it last month, but well, now what are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's and and it's so important because yeah, look, sure, celebrate successes, and yeah, you know, we've got to really be in the moment when it happens. But you know, what? let's not live there. What about as a business leader holding people accountable? Because I feel like it's easy to sit in a sales meeting and say, you know, for your salespeople to say, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to do this with my numbers and I'm going to make this many calls. and But then, you know, four days later or seven days later or whatever it is, mm-hmm. as a business leader, how do you, um, I guess, you know, what do you, what do you teach people about leadership? What do you say to people about actually holding people accountable and, and you know, leading by example and, yeah, look, you know. what, the odd thing is in, in real estate, I mean, I work across a lot of platforms, but yeah. in real estate, the, the, the irony is this and where it becomes difficult. See, people that become leaders in real estate generally come up through the ranks of sales and so forth. Yeah. And they come up through this world I call the yes world. Mm-hmm. Because as you're a salesperson, you create this whole culture around creating yeses. Because when you get a yes... Somebody lists their property, somebody sells a property, somebody buys a property. Mm-hmm. We do everything we possibly can to get a yes. Yeah. We don't like no's. 
because when you know that doesn't bring the tilt, right? Mm-hmm. So that's all good and well as a salesperson. What happens is you launch yourself into the world of leadership, and you've still got this yes mentality because yes mentality comes with everybody feeling happy and loved and butterflies and all the rest of it, and there's no conflict. Mm-hmm. Nice and easy. The minute we introduce this other word, which leaders need to embrace, is called no. Okay. See, no causes pushback. No causes conflict. No causes me not being the popular person in the room. Mm-hmm. That's the transition that we work very hard on. Okay. Getting people from being a yes person into embracing the power of no. Because mm-hmm. that's where you get the shifts. What? What do you tell people about that when you're trying to? You know, is it a difficult transition? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It takes a long time. Yeah. Because your DNA is so wired. To, to create yeses, yeah, you know, oh my God, I've got to become this person not everybody's going to love. Yeah, but it's it's saying no, no, that's not acceptable to not hit your numbers. No, that's not acceptable to not be accountable. No, that's not acceptable to do this or to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, which which also breaks through that paradigm in real estate about, um, you know, I'm an independent contractor. I come mm-hmm. and go as a police. I go bollocks. Yeah, you know. <laughs> You're in my hood, you do it my way. Yeah. You know, because you're working for me because you see me as a person that can help you become more successful. Don't come and work for me and then try and tell me you're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, get on the bus, I'll throw you under it. Yeah. Sort of thing. So based on that, what's your opinion on the difference between a natural leader yeah. and someone who has to learn? Ah, simple. Okay, you're a natural leader. <laughs> you're natural is leader. Is there such a thing? Um, yes, yes and no, there is. There is. Yeah. Um, Look, we all learn more and more through just, as I say, the tapestry of life that we weave and yeah. you know, leadership comes from experiences. And yeah. what's experience? Experience is what we get when we don't get what we want. So uh, <laughs> the whole thing about leadership really is is how often somebody says I versus we. Mm-hmm. Okay. The great leaders naturally go into we, mm-hmm. us. The despotic people, it's all about them, it's I. They're not good leaders. Yeah. Okay. They're the tyrants. Okay. And I'll give you a really good example. Uh, if you think back to 1991 when um, America invaded Iraq mm-hmm. and it was the Desert Storm. Mm-hmm. Okay. The guy that led that up was um, a guy named General Norman Schwarzkopf. They called him Storm and Norman. And um, I'm an avid reader and that was one of the best books I ever read it was his biography. Okay. Um, in fact, I was lucky enough to have lunch with him in Auckland one year. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's unbelievable. He died just last year. Uh, unbelievable human being. And he was he was an amazing leader because he understood people. Mm-hmm. He understood that his success will only come through the success of his people. Mm-hmm. So he had to make sure he had troops in the field that knew he was on their team. He had troops in the field that he had trained and they were the best of the best. And he had troops in the field that knew that he was in their corner. Mm -hmm. And a wonderful example is this. That year um, in 91, they were supposed to get in and out, yeah, like all American wars (laughs) in two days. 20 years later, they're still there. Um, (laughs) But uh, they did get in and out quite quick on the first desert storm. But... It was Christmas Day and he went to the and then he was going in for lunch and they said the officer's mess this so way. He said, No, no, no. He went around and shook the hand of every single person in that mess um, and thanked them for being there on behalf of the American people and their families mm-hmm. and then stood in line and got his meal and sat down with his troops. Okay. Yeah, that's Pretty impressive. Yeah, that's the sort of man that 
that he he was. Yeah. Um, and that's great leadership is where you know people know that you are really helping them grow to become better than they probably see themselves. Because mm-hmm. I will see more in you, Jess, than you will probably ever see in yourself. Mm-hmm. And a great leader knows that and a great leader says, how am I going to get that out of you? Yeah. And the reality is for me to be that great leader, I'm going to have to make you particularly uncomfortable. Yeah, okay. Because you won't do it yourself. And yeah. Like a saying I have is you must find comfort in discomfort. Mm-hmm. Really, really, really important. And a leader knows how to do that. Yeah. Okay. How do you... Yeah, okay. Mm, something to think about. There you mm. go. Um, what is your... And we probably covered this with the no, with the, with the saying no, mm. but biggest tip for someone who is trying to become a better leader? Um, number one is education. Yeah. Yeah, be, become an... Um, Become passionate, become manic about learning new things. Mm-hmm. You know, don't don't think, oh, good, I've, I now own a business and I've been put into a leadership role, I'll just go and do it. The reality is you've been put into that position or you've created that position yourself because you've done reasonably well. Mm-hmm. You need to treat that as a day one mentality. This is the first day of my new career. It's not just an evolutionary thing. You know, get out there and find out, you know, become an avid reader, read lots of books mm-hmm. of great people. Go and search out people that you inspire or inspire you. Go and find people that you think, oh, my God, look at what they do. How can I spend time with them? Don't go and seek advice from people that aren't successful as you. Yeah. That really annoys me when I see people look, you know, they go and say, I've had lunch with this person, I've had lunch with I say, what for? Yeah. They're not going to take you to where you need to be. Mm-hmm. Go and seek people that make you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. That challenge yeah. you. Yeah, and look, if you, if in in that space of a leader, if you look at what makes a great leader, a great leader has an amazing plan. Mm-hmm. You know, create an eye-wateringly great plan that and become public about it. This is my plan. This is my vision. You know, something that there's a creed of my life and something I use a lot in my business is um, having CCV, crystal clear vision. You have a very, very strong crystal clear vision attached to a great plan and tell people about it, share it. Be, almost paint yourself into a corner. Well, it goes back to that accountability that you yeah, talked about then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, you, you know, and a lot of businesses don't have those plans. Leaders don't have that plan. But those that do and they put themselves into all the things that are spoken about, the chances of them succeeding in becoming a great leader are just unbelievable. Yeah. Awesome. That is a great way to finish, I think. A challenge to listeners. That's it. I'm done. You're done. Do you want to tell people um, who are listening and want to find you and want to hear more where they can find you? Um, yeah, look, go to my website, yep. you know, onedegreeconsulting.com.au. Yep. Everything that's who I am, what I do, contact details are all there. Um, but as I said, you know, it's like the whole leadership thing. Our, I guess our ethos is about, it's not about us. In, you know, we're not some guru company or anything. We're just there to help extract out of you what's already there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a gift. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Ross. Pleasure. There's a lot, lot to take out there, a lot to think about. Thanks, Jess. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into The Crunch. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. So if you'd like to share them, please email me at jess at cribcreative.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe if you enjoyed the show and share it with anyone else you think might like it.